um, just to review from last week where we went, we kind of, we saw the start of the church, uh, that Pentecost and Acts, we saw the Holy Spirit working through the apostles and them speaking in tongues and, you know, basically taking the message of Christ out into the world, out into uh, everyone. That first day they converted about 3,000 people. And we're going to see in Peter's next sermon, we're going to kind of look at that here in a little bit. He converted 5,000 people. So within a, within a very short time frame, they, they're, they're getting close to about 10,000 converts in, in just a matter of days. And so but we're going to look at the things that the new church was were doing and, and what they did and what what established them and and what made them who they were um and again like i've been talking about this series is new and i've you know been using revelation 25 he says behold i'm making all things new and so what we're looking at is the the church or the ecclesia in action and, and their start and so my question is i was trying to put this together for this week my main question was, and because this is kind of the basis and, and where I'm trying to, to eventually get to and, and settle on, and hopefully for us to see and, and move forward with, is what was it that made them what we call the Church of Christ? Right? Well, you know, and, and the reason I put these three on this one, because I got another slide, is, you know, our three, what I call our three hooks that we kind of ha- hang our hat on is, is the name that we use, right? We're the church of, we call ourselves the Church of Christ because we try to imitate and be the church that was of Christ in the New Testament. Our salvation beliefs and their salvation beliefs are, are very similar. Now, our name is different than theirs. They were known as the way. They weren't known as Christians um, until later on. And then the church reference, the, the name church didn't come along until several hundred, or actually about a century or so later. <clears throat> And so, you know, they were, like I said, they were known as the way, their salvation is believed. And then, then our, our third hat is our worship, the way we worship, right? We, we believe in acapella music. We, we do communion every Sunday because we're commanded to and those type of things. But I, my argument and my point in, in putting these three on here first is these really weren't what made them the church of Christ or the church, Right? These are important things, so I'm not taking away from them, all right? Our beliefs around salvation are very important. The way we worship is important. But, but the, the, the thing I want to point out is their worship was actually a lot different than what our worship looks like. You know, the, the church, the church building, in essence, didn't come around until three to 400 years after, um, after Christ was crucified and, and ascended into heaven. They mostly met in homes, um, their worship service w- consisted of a lot, much prayer, and different prayers, and hours of prayer. Um, <clears throat> their communion service was a separate, was sometimes was referred to as a love feast. It was a separate thing that they did, and it consisted of, again, a lot of prayer, and it was a long, it, it was, it, that was the centerpiece of what they did. And it was a very thorough, I say, process of, it was a very important thing that they, they, you know, similar like what we do now, but it was, you know, a little bit different than how we do it. Their worship, you know, they sang hymns and, they, and, and the, from the, I'm sorry, not hymns, the, um, 
psalms and, and, and different things like that that they would sing. And in their speaking, if you actually look in, I think it's 2 Corinthians, I can't remember. Um, Maybe 1 Corinthians, I think it's 14. They, they give instruction on, their, wor- on their, their worship a little bit. And they actually had multiple speakers. You know, someone would speak, and then another person would speak. And it was more of kind of like our Bible class where someone would get up, like, or, you know, someone would get up and speak, and then someone else would have something to say. And they would speak. And it was more of a discussion type, but it was done in an in a order. It wasn't just people just up and talking and, and doing those type of things. So their worship service, you know, if they were to see our worship service today, it would be very different than what they look like back in the first century church. Nothing wrong with what we're doing now. I'm just letting you know these are not the things that define them as the church of Christ or the church. But this is what did. And this isn't all of them. These are the, I think, the main things. I mean, the first three or four of these you see within the first five verses in Acts 2 of the church being established. The first one, I'm going to go through these, and then we're going to talk about each one individually. The first one was their devotion, and their devotion to study, and their devotion to one another. And this was daily. The sacrificial mentality that they had. They were willing to give up almost everything to follow and serve Christ. Their care for the poor and the sanctity of life. We're going to cover that. We're probably going to spend a little more time on that one because I think that's something that we need to, to look at a little bit closer. Evangelism, that's another one. They were very serious about it to the point of death. And then the last two is their faith and their love. And maybe the first two need to be at top, and that's what made the, the rest of the four. But, but all those things kind of working together and, and being what they are. So let's look at the first one. Their devotion to study in one another. And, and I just used the first two ver- or first verses of Acts 2, 42 and 2.46. In Acts 2.42, and this is right after right, Peter's sermon, and they, they're baptized, and they add about 3,000 to the church. And then it goes on and says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And last week I covered that word devote, and I talked about some of the things that we're devoted to. And the question I asked is, do we devote ourselves to the teachings of the, of the apostles, which is the Bible and the New Testament that we have today? And do we devote ourselves to fellowship? And do we devote ourselves to the breaking of bread? And do we devote ourselves to prayer? Huh? No. <laughs> when you think of devoting yourself to something, what do you think? Total commitment? 100%? What are some examples of devotion that you see today? People in their football teams. We have no doubt who Chris is devoted to, right? We have no idea. We, we know who De- Joey is devoted to politically, correct? No doubt about that one. What 
And, and don't get me wrong when I say that. There's, just, there's nothing wrong with being having a favorite football team and having those things. It's, it's the placement of that priority, that devotion in your life, right? My thing is, is if I get out, and I use Facebook and social media as an example, because that kind of gives me a, a peek into a lot of people's lives, right? If I go out and look, and I see out there, and I look out there, and I see what people have commented and shared, you kind of get an idea of what people are devoted to, right? Based on that. He said, what he said here is if we were devoted, we would go out and we'd be bringing people in. We're going to look at that number here in a second because that's, that's going to tie into to a lot of this. So they, they were devoted. And then if we look at 246, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. If I said we needed to start meeting day by day or daily and studying and fellowshipping, having meals together, what, would, what was y'all's response? Troy already gave us. <laughs> he laughed, right? Now, look, I understand that this is a different time. This is not the first century, right? <laughs> yeah, they didn't have anything to do, right? Yep. This was before they were scattered. But I, I, I honestly believe, and, and it's my belief, and, it's, and I, doesn't, I don't think there's a lot of reference to it, but I still think they, they kind of did this once they were even scattered, too. You know, not as maybe in a large group of people, but I, I believe that as they spread and they continue to grow the church, that they continue to do a lot of these things that we see the first church take off with because I don't think they would have continued to grow if they didn't. And, and I mean, again, I, I, you can see a little bit in the Bible of the New Testament of some of the things they did. It doesn't say specifically that they did that. That's right. They did. They faced persecution that we do not face. And sometimes, and, and like, it's, that's kind of a, a two-edged sword. Because sometimes I wonder if we should almost, instead of praying, thanking God for the freedom that we have to come and do this unpersecuted, sometimes I wonder if we should pray that maybe you need to give us a little bit of persecution so we'll realize how serious this is. When 9-11, the church was attacked, Same thing happened during the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. They said churches in Florida and all over the South were so packed you couldn't have hardly room to sit. And same thing after 9-11. And we, we, you can actually see when you watch church growth, even in the Church of Christ, the church growth uh, hit. Um, you see a bump after 9-11. Our membership went up. And that happened across the board, all churches. <laughs> And so what I'm saying is I'm not saying, yes, we need to start meeting daily in our houses, and, and I don't know if it would be a bad thing. But, you know, that, that, I'm not saying that's the answer. What I'm saying is, is that that was their devotion. They were devoted, you know, to reading and studying the Word and to understanding 
what Christ wanted them to do. And I think if we were to get that devotion and be devoted to that again, we would look a lot different, and the church would look a lot different. And so I, that's what my, my thing is, you know, how that's going to look, it, that may look like, well, maybe we meet more than once, but not daily, but maybe we meet more often as a group of people. You know, maybe we give up some things in order to pursue a more Christian lifestyle or, or to bring more people to Christ. Maybe we give up some things to help other people. Maybe we, you know, those type of things. You know, and I, I could go on and on, and we're going to look at some of this as it plays out. So they were, they were devoted. Now, they weren't perfect. And this is one of the things I want to make sure, because I know I've talked a lot about this. We can read through the New Testament, and I think there's, I was doing some research on it, and I think there's like 150 different times in the New Testament where the New Testament church was corrected for things they were doing wrong. So, I mean, they weren't perfect, right? They weren't going out and doing everything, you know, perfectly in the perfect church, and like they didn't have any problems. They did. And, and I think the number is 150 times where we can see that, that Paul or, or one of the, the writers of the New Testament corrected the church in some of the things. And some of the things they were doing were really bad. I mean, one... one one um, instance, what, a uh, son was sleeping with his stepmom. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, so it's, you know, th there were some things going on in the, in the church that were not good. So, uh, don't get me wrong and think that I'm saying that they were perfect and they did everything right. No, they were human and, and just as messed up as we were. But they were passionate and they were devoted and they were dedicated and, and they just blew Christianity wide open in, 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 the, in, the, in, the, in the, the entire known world at that time. So I think some of the study would have been some Old Testament stuff because they needed to understand the old, right, to understand what Christ was and who he was. Um, a lot of it would have been verbal, you know, at that time. And I'm sure they wrote some things down, and then eventually we got into the letters. But a lot of the letters weren't written until 50, 60, 70 years after, the, um, after Christ. No, no. Because uh, even Jesus in, in Revelation talks about the different churches. Oh, yeah. How they left the first love, one thing after another. I mean, they were far from perfect. Oh, yeah, I definitely. Too, but uh, I, think, I think the church today is trying to, but uh, we have a lot of distractions. We do. We have. That's exactly what Satan wants. No. And, no. and, and I, Jesus knew that. He knew we were going to have a lot of distractions. Yeah. No, I agree 100%. Yeah. I think in 1988, when you had all that controversy going on with those big ministers, television ministers, I think Christianity did a big, a big nosedive because uh, to me it seemed like they were putting their faith in the ministry instead of in the creator. I think we have seen a lot of that. I mean, that maybe, well, I, let me, let me, so what he said was, and, and I repeat this because a lot of times the microphones don't pick up the live stream on the live stream. <laughs> What he's talking about is, you know, we've, we've kind of, even some of the large churches, the mega churches or whatever, they've put their faith in, in the actual preachers and, instead of Christ himself. I think I paraphrased that, that Purdue. Um, and I think there's some truth to that, and I'll, I'll say it this way. I've seen that not only in the big churches, but in small churches. All right, so if you follow my family and dad, 
moving around through the different churches that we've moved through. Every single one of them, and this isn't to say that Dad's the best and wonderful, but we would grow a church. I think he's wonderful, and I do think he's the best, but <laughs> we would grow a, they, he, they would grow a church, he would leave, and that church would drop and die. And then he'd, you know, we'd move to another location. That church would go and grow and grow and grow. And he had to move on for a while. If we had to leave Kansas because of the oil economy tanking and we moved to West Virginia, that church shrunk up and died. Garnet, or Nitro, West Virginia. You know, we, that church was around 200. Dad got the call to come down here. That church shrunk up and not dead but it's a shell of what it used to be. Now, why is that? Is it Dad's fault? No. It, what, what have we done in the church, and I think it goes around a lot of this devotion that we talk about, what have we done in the church around ministers? We've elevated them up, right? And we basically have made the person who stands up here their job to do everything in the church for the most part. They're the ones who should be doing the evangelism. They're the ones who should be doing the soul winning. They're the ones who should be, you know, doing the preaching and teaching all the classes. And we come because we like the preacher and what he says and his style. But then the minute he leaves, we all find somewhere else to go. Because there's no one here left. Because one, there's a shortage of preachers. It takes an average of a year and a half to two years to find another preacher. Then there's no one else to step into the shoes. And so no one else is willing to step up. And so everyone just kind of leaves and the church falls apart. And then you're some of your dedicated people stick around. That's what's happened. I've witnessed it happen three times. Yeah, let me, let me go on that a little bit further. I, I think that's a different scenario here, but I think a lot of that is we've had the discussions around that kind of stuff of, okay, well, it's not just the preacher's job to do these things. And so other people need to start stepping up. That's kind of why I've started doing what I'm doing and put myself in a very uncomfortable spot where I, I you know, really didn't want to be at first, but I, I, do, I love it now. But that, those are the type of things, you know. If we saw what the preacher does as our job too, if something happens up here, well, this is just a snap and we can just keep on rolling. And so I, I think that's, that's part of it too is because we have taken the Great Commission and the things that we are supposed to do as Christians and pushed them all onto the preacher and a couple fanatical, really, really devoted, radical people in the church and let them do it all. And we'll get to the numbers on that. Hopefully I have time. All right, so the sacrificial mentality, they, you know, and again, this is a couple verses in. And again, I know this was the start of the church. And I know they were still all in one place. But you still have to look at this. So if we look at Acts 2, 44 and 45, again, we're five verses past 
the conversion. And all those who were, had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And then if we look at Acts 4, 32 through 37, in the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were given testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses, plural, would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each of them as any had need. Now, Joseph, a Levite, of, I want to say that's Superion, I can't know the exact, I don't know the exact birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means sons of encouragement, <coughs> excuse me, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, why do you think this was put in there? But I mean, there, but there's a lot of things that happen, right? And there's a lot of things that would... But why do you think this about giving is in there? To go back to uh, Acts 2.40, Acts 2.41, where we, where we first started. Because all the hands lead to these points and these ideas and then to get particular to calling names of people who were actually a part of they that were baptized and those who were being moved in the way. Here's my thought. There's things that are in the Bible because they're important. Or everything in the Bible is important. But, but they're, they're put in there because they're, you know, so when you see a little, almost like a little side note about Joseph here, it's not just some random, oh, we, we, let's just jot this down. All right? I believe this was in here because, again, this, this goes back to the devotion side. This was a time frame where you didn't have, it wasn't like what we, we, we see in the United States today, right? A very comfortable, very you know, blessed group of people. A lot of these people, you know, their, their lives, their, their eating, their everything was a daily sur survival. You know, there were some who had surplus, but not, the majority did not. Right? I mean, you look in the, in the United States today, we live in a land of surplus. We live in a land of hoarders and storage buildings and storage rooms in your house and your attics are full of junk and just overabundance. All right? This is not what, how they lived back then. They had enough to survive for the most part, and that was a day, almost a daily survival. And so you had people who were selling their houses, and they were selling their tracts of land that they owned, and they were just coming and giving it to the apostles to help spread the message and help grow the church and to help other people who were in need. Now, our definition of in need and their definition of in need is a lot different. Their definition of in need was they were going to starve to death you know, they didn't know, might not know where their next meal was going to come from for several days. Ours, you know, it, it, for the most part, there's very few people in the United States who are going to go hungry or not know where their next meal is going to come from. There's something, there's some sort of safety net there for that. And so these people were dedicated enough, and again, th this is not something that happened within a, a couple years of the church starting. 
This is, you're, you're three or four verses in. And they were selling and everything. And, and I love, you know, and, and again, we got to, and I, we talked about this a little bit last week. This does not mean that we all need to, to bring everything here and share it and all make it our own and, and have some communal living thing. You know, that's not what it's talking about, right? What it's saying was, the, the, the idea and the mentality was, what is mine is not mine. It belongs to the Lord. And if I, I can, so therefore, it belongs to the church. And if someone has need of it, then I'm willing to, to give it up or share it. That was the mentality. That's a little hard for us to grasp onto sometimes. I'm going to be honest with you, the hardest thing I've seen and the, the strongest reactions that I've gotten in this class have had to do with financial stuff or, or means or things. It's hard. Yeah, go ahead. No. No, and I think, and I don't think anywhere does it say they sold everything they had. What what they they what it looks like, and if you look at the at one of the verses here, there's a plural houses. I, I think this would probably have been people who own multiple houses, and so they gave up the things that they had in surplus or an extra that they weren't using or didn't need to in, to to give back to the church. So yeah, I, I'm not saying that they went out and just sold everything they had and just didn't have anything. No, they, they gave up the surplus of what they had in many years. Now, there's some, you know, we see the one lady in there that Jesus talks about. She did. She gave everything she had. It was a very small amount. So no, that's not what, but what I'm, the, the thing is, is, is uh, the mentality I think we need to make sure that we have is one, what is ours is not ours. Right? It belongs to God. God blessed us with it. We have it. And it doesn't matter if you're, you make $10 million a year or you make $10,000 a year. It all belongs to God, and he's blessed you with it. <clears throat> and the mentality that we need to have and continue to have around that is that it is his. And sometimes that's hard. No, that is hard because I've worked hard. You know, I, I've, I've earned the things that I've, I've, I've gotten. You know, sometimes we get that mentality, and we, we, we've got to realize is I've worked hard because God has given me the ability to work hard. You know, I, I, made, I can make that choice. You know, you can choose whether you work hard or not, but God's given you the ability. God's blessed you with the gift or the ability that you have to earn the money that you've got, or God's blessed you with the position that you're in, and God's blessed you with the country that you live in to where you can have the ability to even do what we're doing. And so we need to make sure we don't forget that. And we need to make sure that we are a little more willing, I think, sometimes to be open with what God's blessed us with. And I'm speaking to myself on this one, too. On all of these, I'm speaking to myself. Because a lot of this stuff can be, can be hard. The Bible talks about money and financial things more than it does anything else. And I believe the reason it does is because when it gets to the heart of things, that's, that's a hard thing for humankind. Our possessions, our money, our things is a hard thing to give up sometimes. And we have seen that. All right, so the next thing I'm going to talk about, their care for the poor and the sanctity of life. Now, what's interesting, and, and I, as I, I've never really looked at it this way until I started studying a lot of this, 
Caring for the poor is a condition for getting into heaven. If you read Matthew 25, and he, and he goes through a lot of terrible, terribles, parables here, but he talks about, and I don't, I don't have the whole thing here, but I'm going to hit verses 34 through 40, and this is talking about the judgment. And this is you know, a parable around the judgment of at the end times. And he says, The king will say to those on his right, Come, because at this point he's separated them from left to right. He said, The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now what's the answer? Well, you know, they ask the question, or he says here, I'm sorry, for I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. So he doesn't say, well, you came to church three times a week. He doesn't say, you did all this other stuff right, so now you get to come into heaven. He says you treated people well who were not blessed, who were, who were downtrodden, and you took care of them. And the righteous one said, Lord, when, we, when do we see you hungry or feed you or, thirst, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when do we see you a stranger invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. So we're talking, if we're looking at this parable. This is called the judgment in a lot of the Bibles. And it is an example of Well, what did you do that allowed me to allow you into heaven? It's a little bit different than I think sometimes our, we, we think mentally of what it takes for us to get to heaven. Now, again, we don't earn our way into heaven. We don't do anything to earn it. But there's expectations of us once we receive that salvation to continue doing things or to do things that we should be doing. And this is a big one. I never really thought of it that way. I'm going to be honest with you. I never did until I was studying this. But this... So, the New Testament church changed the mentality around the value of life from the time it was established going on. That a lot of the things that we see today, hospitals, all these kind of institutions that take care of people were started by Christians and, and have their roots in Christianity. <clears throat> to give you an example, back in when the church first started, there was something they called life watches. Anyone ever heard of this? What a life watch was or life watch groups. So back in that day, if someone had a baby they did not want, because abortion really wasn't, I mean, there were some, but for the most part, if you got pregnant, you had the baby. If you didn't want it, you threw it out. So there were areas where 
they would dispose of babies. Um, sometimes they were garbage dumps. Sometimes they were areas where there were a lot of wildlife, so the wildlife could get to them, those type of things. So a, and I, don't, I don't know if I'm going to get this name right. Uh, one of the members of the church was called Catalystus, C-A-L-L-I-S-T-S. He started those. And they started groups who would go to these known areas, and they would find these babies, and they would bring them in and raise them as their own. They would find families who would take them, Christian families who would take them. And as I started thinking about that, because it was not uncommon, infanticide, it was not uncommon to, to just kill babies. And if you didn't like some or you didn't like it, you killed it. So I started that, that mentality and that thought. You know, I, we do okay, I think, sometimes taking care of the poor. I think there's more. We have our, our food bank, and it's a good program. But I wonder sometimes if that takes care of us. And again, I'm not, that's a wonderful program, and it's a wonderful thing. But I want to, sometimes I wonder if we've, we talked about this a little bit, we've let the government kind of take our place on some of the things that we should be doing. But I, I, as I started thinking about this, and this one's dear to my heart because of the fact that I would not have met my wife if it weren't for foster care system. So currently right now in the U.S. foster care, there are 440,000 children in the U.S. foster care system. 30,000 of those are forced out every single year. Let's look at this real quick. Those 30,000 are forced out every year, meaning they hit of age, they're 18 to 21, and so they're basically kicked out of the system, and they're, if they don't have anyone, they're left to, to be on their own. Within four years, 50% of those have no income. 70% of them will be on government assistance, and those who do kind of get a job and find something to do average $7,500 a year. There's a lot of other statistics that's really, really bad around them. Most of them don't get a high school education. Most of them don't even get close to getting a college education. Let's continue looking at those. Right now, there is 250,000 children being added a year to the foster care system. And the number of this 440,000 keeps going up because there are not enough people in the foster care system to help those who are being added and help bring them out and adopt them out. Like I said, 30,000 a year are forced out. The median age in the foster care system is six and a half years old. And only 2% of Americans have ever adopted. So like I said, on this one I'm talking to myself too, because this is something that hits home with us. Let's look at locally. There was an article released last year, in May of 2019, that the Valdosta Daily Times did. And this is just looking at some of our surrounding counties. Berrien County at the time had 47 children, but they only had four homes to put them in. Eccles County had five children. I think I've got to imagine that number is higher because all the numbers have gone up. There's only two homes in Eccles County. In Coffee County, there's 204 children, where it was at this time, and there was only 19 homes to put them in. In Lowndes County, there's 155 children and only 36 homes to put them in. If we break that into the region that we are in, we're in what's Region 11, which consists of 18 counties. 
There are 1,200 kids who need homes, or at the time of this, and it's probably still around the same, but there were only 192 homes to place them in, and that number has not changed in five years. So my question, what are the Christians going to do about it? It's a hard one. Fostering's hard. Taking babies who are left side of dump, raising them as your own when you don't have any food hardly by yourself, that's hard. It would be. It, it, yeah. It's hard. Raising these children is hard. But where in the Bible does it say being a Christian is going to be easy? Like I said, this one hits home with us. Because most of y'all know, Helen was raised in the foster care system. So I have to ask myself, why have we not fostered or adopted anyone yet? I can come up with a million reasons. I can come up with a bunch of excuses. And again, you know, sometimes some of this stuff's not for everyone. But if you've raised a child, you, you, I, I, you know what? I'll take that back. There's examples of women who've never had children. And there you see examples of 100, 150 kids who have come through their homes. That is what Christianity and the church look like. This is hard. Like I said, I was going to challenge people. I'm challenging myself. This is a challenge. Because we have to give up a lot of our comforts and a lot of our things sometimes if we wanted to do something like this. Kathy, but we was asked three different times to be foster parents. Mm -hmm. But I couldn't do it because I knew if I kept that child and they would come and get that child, they would be a problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, that's, and that's... And I'm not saying that this is easy. I know it's not. I've witnessed it myself. I've lived in it. I haven't lived in it, but I've been in it. I've seen it. It's hard. It's not easy. But being a Christian, if we do it right, is hard, and it's not easy. Kids in foster The biggest reason... They, they will. There are, there are currently right now 125,000 children waiting to be adopted in the United States. No, 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 you don't. For the most part with this stuff, it's done. For the most part, you can do it through the foster care system. Everything's paid for.
And a lot of that stuff, and, and yeah, in fact, if you look, the, the, they just signed a bill in Georgia to make it even easier because of how bad. The main reason it's so bad is because of the opioid and drug addiction problems we have in the United States. That's the number one reason. And it's continuing to get worse and it's continuing to grow. Yes. And so my, my point on this is it may be hard. It may be hard having a child come in and leave. Come in and leave. But what influence could you have as a Christian on that person? On that child? You might be able to change their whole life because they spent three months in your house. Yeah. So real quick evangelism act four the verse the top of verse four they are willing to be put in jail and imprisoned and killed to evangelize all right i'm gonna go over our, our evangelism statistics real quick we've seen these less than two percent of christians will invite someone to church 95 percent of christians have never won a soul 63 percent of church leadership has not won a soul in the last two years. That includes the minister, the deacon, and the elder. And only 17% of people who claim to be Christians knew what the Great Commission was and what it meant. So does our evangelism look like it did in the New Testament? No. Again, I'm talking to myself on this one too because I have not done anywhere close what I need to be doing when it comes around evangelism. So lastly, faith and love. We've got a minute. And I just wrote this on here because I think this is how simple it actually is. Faith of a mustard seed and love like he loved us. We know those verses. We've hit them. We've talked about, love, you know, the new commandment to love one another like he has loved us. So my final question is then, who are we? And I'm going to say this because this has been in my head a lot. I personally believe if we do not become a resemblance of what we see in the New Testament church, then we should take the sign that says Church of Christ off our building. If we are not going to be a church of Christ. Now, I'm not saying we need to be as exactly like the New Testament church, right? There's some things there we're not going to be able to do. But my thing is, is if we're not going to resemble the church of Christ and be the church of Christ, then we should not call ourselves the church of Christ. And I know that's hard sometimes. But these are the things that as you, if you really read the Bible and you dive into the Bible and you dive deep into the scriptures and you look at what Jesus taught and what he did, then we would look a lot different. And I don't mean that to be critical. I don't mean that to be, you know, critical of the church. I'm not. This is a wonderful church. This is a wonderful people. 
but I know we can be so much more. And I know that, because I know the people in this church, I know that we can be the church that we see in the New Testament. And we can bring people through those doors, and we're going to need to put 10 visitor signs out there because we're going to have so many people coming in. In fact, we may, you know, just turn the whole parking lot, we can all park in the grass. And that's what I want to see. And that's what I'm passionate about. Because as, if you really deep dive into this, that is what they did. And that's what they cared about, and that's what they wanted to do. I'm out of time. I'm going to stop here. I think next week we will, I'm going to start looking at prayer, either prayer or the Holy Spirit, one of those two, or maybe both, prayer and the Holy Spirit, because I think there's a lot that those are intertwined with each other. Thank you.